Hostility mounted in the huge hall on the first floor of the grand castle of Shinu. A great fire roared in the great chimney as 300 lords, knights, and ladies of the court gathered one early March evening. Charles de Ponchu had agreed to speak to someone that anyone could see was no more than an unwashed lowlife. An illiterate 17-year-old child promising to liberate France from the English invaders and make him king. Despite the few successes of Gil de Rey and his comrades, the English still claimed most of his war-torn country. For Charles, it was time to grasp at straws. His kingdom lay in ruin and he feared he might be exiled as the English kept advancing. The French attributed the current Hundred Years' War to his inability to beat back the goddams. The war, as well as heavy taxation, made his government extremely unpopular, adding to the fact his father's self-imposed exile from the throne due to his insanity, and his mother remarrying the King of England. So Charles had consented to speak to Joan of Arc, with a little persuasion from the town official of Vukula, the walled city near Joan's home. He paid for her trip and wrote Charles a letter saying she accurately predicted a devastating outcome for the French at the Battle of Herrings. Joan of Arc fell to her knees and told Charles that God had sent her to aid him. The apprehensive Charles, as well as his court, were far from certain that this young peasant was genuine. However, Gil de Rey was immediately spellbound by Joan of Arc and concluded that her mission, to crown Charles King, was God's intent. Lawyers and doctors of theology questioned Joan of Arc intensively. She was physically examined to make sure she was a virgin. Otherwise, she would have been considered to be a witch. As everyone in the 15th century knew, the only way one became a witch was to have sex with the devil. Still unsure of her role, Charles commanded that a suit of steel be fashioned for Joan at Tours, famous for making armors. Made of polished, unbrowned steel, it gave Joan of Arc a striking ethereal appearance. She seemed to be an apparition engulfed in white, glimmering armor. Her prized white linen banner, fringed in silk, depicting God holding the world, was also from Tours. Charles had initially offered Joan a command of 15 men, but instead opted to make her commander-in-chief of his French forces. She then set off to liberate the cathedral town of Orleans, after requesting to Charles himself to allow Gil de Rey to be her protector on the battlefield. Initially, de la Tremouille, Charles' advisor, had advised and suggested the appointment for sinister reasons, more for observational purposes than benevolent safekeeping. But Gil de Rey remained loyal to Joan throughout their time together. There was never a hint of his twisted behavior when he fought along her. It was royal decree that captains and all other ranks of soldiers followed Joan's leadership as commander-in-chief. But as she looked around where her troops gathered for the attack of Orleans, Joan was shocked by the army's behavior. All she could see was barbarous drinking, gambling, and wicked whoring. Her captains were the heavy drinking, irreverent, war-worn leaders. None of this would have been surprising to somebody less innocent. These hardened men filled the wine shops. They staggered around the tiny streets, urinating on posts. Outside the doors of the beautiful St. Nicholas Church, inebriated rowdy crowds of soldiers 
yelled insults and assaulted one another as they gathered around betting games. Ladies of the night and infantrymen seemed to fornicate everywhere. They gathered in front of homes, on street corners, in alleys, behind churches to the ancient square integrated into the town's fortifications. Rampant bestiality also ran unchecked within the rank of soldiers. Joan of Arc put a stop to all of this and called her captains together. She ordered the sinfulness to stop immediately. The orgies and the vulgarity must end and the prostitutes must leave camp. She commanded the captains to attend mass and say their prayers along with their men, for they were to be part of an army led by heaven. Incredibly enough, the violent French chiefs agreed to go to confession. The soldiers first were astonished by Joan's ultimatum, since swearing and debauchery had been learned at an early age. However, they were spellbound as Joan, a figure in white armor, rode among them. In reverence to her, they obeyed her every order and put their faith in Joan and her voices. They bit their lips to keep from swearing and marched after her banner with the image of Christ. Her friar led the troops, singing hymns and anthems. Raucous debauchery gave away to sober piety. He's talking and I'm not, and I'm just. <laughs> and then I'm talking. <laughs> no, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom. Shut down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrating on the mood. Shit's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> huh. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I am your host, Moses Sorry, and with me to my left is my brother, Josh. Yo. Sitting directly in front of me is Archie. You better not fucking change that <laughs> shit. We're doing it. We're changing it. So today, we're going to start our part two. On our Gilded Race series. But before we begin, I completely spaced on mentioning our sources for this whole series. On our episode one, I did not mention them at all. So that's my bad and no, sorry. So most of the information for this series is coming from the book Bluebeard, Brave Warrior, Brutal Psychopath by Valerie Ogden. That's where the majority of our, of our information is coming from. Mm-hmm. We also have another book called The Horrific Crimes of Gilda Ray's Revisited Life of a Serial Killer of the Middle Ages by Jack Smith. And there's also a documentary on Amazon Prime called The Horrific Crimes of Gilda Ray. I mean, sorry, Secrets of History, Gilda Ray, which can be found on Amazon Prime. That one's a legit French documentary. Uh, we got subtitles on it? It has subtitles on it. Oh, we good. It has subtitles on it. So here's a good go and check those out. So last week... We covered the early life of Gil Ray with the sad and empty childhood he had under the care of his greedy grandfather, Jean de Cron. We learned about DeRay's love for studies and for the fine arts, and we also read about his entry into the military with DeRay having just defeated the English in three decisive battles, Rainfort, Lude, and the Battle of Malicorn. And that, that was in our latest episode, Gil Ray, Part 1, The Curse of the Black Planet. And we left off with Joan of Arc, the future patron saint of soldiers, entrance into the grand story of Gil de Ray. 
So sit back and enjoy part two as we find out the impact that jo the, of Joan of Arc and she had in DeRay's life and begins to the downfall of one of France's greatest heroes with part two, Guillaume DeRay and the Maid of Orleans. So Joan of Arc was said to have been born in 1412 in a small village of Doremy, La Pousseur, in Bar of France. Her parents are Jacques d'Arc and Isabelle Romay, but despite a contrary belief, Joan was actually not born into a porn family. Poor family. Now, porn family. <laughs> a porn family. A porn <laughs> family, <laughs> you say. She did a, she did a 180. <laughs> a 180. Despite to very contrary belief. Nah, she wasn't born uh, from a poor family. As a matter of fact, her father was actually a farmer, the tax collector of the town, and owned about 50 acres of land. That's a shit ton of land to own if you consider someone to be poor in that time. I mean, maybe she was poor compared to like Gilda Ray and the rest of these lords. But yeah, I mean, but that's true though, because in most of the books, most of our sources, she's known as the peasant Joan of Arc. The illiterate. I mean, she is. Well, she, that that is true. She, she is. Illiterate. She wasn't educated. She didn't go yeah. to school, and she was the, illiterate. And every time they describe Joan of Arc before she joining the French army, she was just this stinky plebeian. She, she was, just she was pleb. horrible. She was like yeah. horrible. Yeah. She smelled like foot cheese. It was horrible. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about the foot cheese later. <laughs> wow. As a matter of fact, like I said, that was her family. That was the background that she had, and not only that. The father was also the head of the town watch of Don Reme. She learned domestic skills from her mother and became a pretty well-experienced seamstress. Besides this, not much, not much can be said about Joan's early life. She was a small-time girl, living basically an average life from someone at the time. However, her life changed almost instantly when she turned 16 and would soon become one of the national heroines of France, and as well as a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. At the age of 16, Joan of Arc experienced her first vision. And I'll talk about these visions as we go along, because this, this is one of the reasons as to why Joan of Arc is so significant, because she would have the visions that will in turn start this huge journey that made her relevant in history. Yeah. And so Joan was, was, born, was born during the Hundred Years war that was ongoing between england and france uh on 1415 the english led king that was led by king henry v delivered a shattering blow to defeat france in desperate attempt france organized a treaty called the treaty of troyes that granted king henry and his associates heir to, to the throne of france upon the death of king france or king charles the uh it was around here when joan had a vision so vivid where saints such as St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret called her as the savior of France and also asked her to convince King Charles VI's son, future King Charles VII, to expel the English from the throne and call him solely the King of France. And and then these visions, they just came out of nowhere, right? It was out just of like nowhere. one day she's just having these. Yeah. Some like what I was while we while I was doing research, some people said that these visions that she had, they might have been epileptic fits where mm -hmm. she just started having seizures. And yeah. 
I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, and I'll talk about that because there's psychologists that research more about this and they're saying connection as to reasons why they she believed their considered visions yeah because a lot of it wasn't just her to be honest there's a lot of people around the time that that had moments like that incidents like that so much to her luck king henry the fifth did indeed have a son and both king henry the fifth and i'm sorry not king henry but king charles did indeed have a son and also both king henry the fifth and king charles actually died within months of each other in 1422 which in then turn gave the throne to king charles's son who will then soon to become king charles the seventh of france thanks to joan of arc thanks to joan of arc's vision joan continued to have visions on and off and on may of 1428 she had yet another vision that instructed her to go to vancouver to meet Robert de Bandicourt, a commander and supporter of the current Dauphin, Charles. So remember, at this point, even though the crown the, the crown was soon to be given to Charles, he wasn't technically considered a king. Yeah, because the, the, the Dauphin still existed. Exactly. And what a Dauphin is, is basically the next in line. The next in line. At first, Robert de Bandicourt refused to serve her request of having him escort her to meet the Dauphin. But villagers strongly believed in Joan and her visions. The village people firmly believed that Joan was in fact the messenger of God. These rumors eventually convinced Robert and agreed to bring Jean to the Dauphin. Then in 1429, he gave her a horse, had several soldiers escort her across enemy territory in Chinon, which we'll talk about later, where the site of Dauphin Charles resides. Joan then cut her hair, dressed as a man, wore armor, and embarked on this 11-day journey. When Joan arrived, she immediately confessed to the courts that she was called in by God and was going to be the savior of France. The Dauphin Charles was dressed incognito amongst the court and did not know what to say about this peasant girl, basically, who claims to be the savior of France. His attention, however, was brought in when Joan correctly identified him amongst the court almost instantly. The two had a private conversation away from anyone to discuss more about these quote-unquote visions. And Dolphin Charles was even more taken aback when Joan even revealed to him a prayer that, Saint, that, that Charles made to God in order to save France. Still wary, however, Charles had her examined by experienced theologists to check to see if she's legit. His theologist found her to be filled with chastity and humility, and of course, she was legit. So let's go into the visions that she would have. We already talked about two of them. One of them being that Charles is going to have a son who will then become the heir to the king of France. Two, or actually three technically. Two, that she was a savior of France. And then three, that she was to go meet this guy, Robert, to escort her to go talk to this future king, uh, uh, Charles. And lastly, there's one more thing that um, another vision that was kind of a trip, to be honest, that talked about her sword. And now Joan of Arc was not one to fight. She was 
very i don't how how did you mention it she was more of a like a diplomatic leader on the field where yeah. she was just she was like the face of the army telling people what to do but as far as her going out and killing people mm-hmm. that what she did not want to do mm-hmm. and so she was very religious she wasn't one to kill she was more one to like moses said lead the army and so this sword was very significant because this was a sword that according to one of her visions was found in a cathedral that no one knew the sword even existed there and so the sword that was found was over in saint catherine of fibrebois and so when they when the when charles asked joan hey we're gonna send you into battle you need to have some weaponry and before he asked you know do you want this sword she said no 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 I had a vision. Charles was like, oh, fuck. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. Okay. He rolled her eyes like, okay. And, he, and she said, there's this sword that's over in this cathedral in St. Catherine de Fribois. It's, look at it. It's behind the altar. It's on the floor. It's underground. Go find it for me. Bring it to me. This is, this is the sword that I want. And so this is her telling of the sword. That's how detailed yeah. that vision was. Yeah. Where she could just be like, yeah. yo, it's, be, it's her, behind the altar, under, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Like, all her visions were like detailed, detailed. vision. Where, like, she was like watching a movie and then she's like, just, just said yeah. it all over again. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so this is her telling. This sword was in the earth, all rusty. And there were upon it five crosses. And I knew it by my voices that I had never seen the man who went to seek the sword. I wrote to the prelates of the place that they, they, they please... I should have the sword, and they sent it to me. It was not a very deep underground behind the altar. It seems to me, but I do not know exactly whether it was before or behind this altar. After the sword was found, the prelates of the place had it rubbed, and at once the rest fell from it without difficulty. There was an arms merchant of Tours who went to seek it, and the prelates of the place gave me a sheath and those of Taurus also with them had two sheaths made for me one of the red velvet and the other of the cloth of gold and I myself had another made of the right strong leather but when I was captured it was not that sword which I had I always wore the sword until I had withdrawn from St. Denis after the assault against Paris and so Story has it that this sword actually belonged to a man by the name of Charles Martel, who left it there as an offering of thanks for his victory at the Battle of Tours over the Sacrens in 732. Holy shit. So that fucking sword had been buried for like over 700 years. Mm-hmm. And it permanently, permanently halting the, the Muslims' invasion of Europe. So that was her vision. That's how she got her sword. That's how she got her main weapon. That that's how she got her main weapon. But like how she mentioned, she lost it. She had yeah, this whole vision of this of her grabbing the sword, but she lost it. And in her testament that happened when she got captured by the England, they they kept on picking at her like, "Where's the sword? Where's the sword?" And you know, everyone else confirmed that she did have the sword when you know they brought it in and all that stuff, but. <clears throat> She already lost it before that second battle that they talked about. Where she was captured. Exactly. 
And so now going back to these visions, like Moses talked about, many modern psychologists believe that it was common at the time for people who have religious backgrounds, especially to have visual or auditory hallucinations, especially the young adults. Some even believe that Joan might had signs of schizophrenia. During the trials, Joan would mention that she had visions and most times it would be accompanied by a bright light and the voices would become even more pronounced when she was in isolation one and two bells would be ringing. Another theory claims that she probably developed uh, bovine tuberculosis from drinking the unpasteurized milk and tending to the cattle as a child. And this type of tuberculosis has shown to cause seizures and dementia. Uh, yeah. And in addition to this, you know, eventually Joan did become considered as a saint according to the Roman Catholic Church. But at the time, compared to now, at least if my sources are right, it took four miracles to happen in order for that person to be considered a saint. Now it only takes one. Oh, so now, so the bar's been lowered. About the bar's been way lowered. So, so one miracle, and then you're a saint. <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. And so. The four miracles that happened that I'm going to talk about all happened post her death. So it wasn't things that happened, you know, while she was still alive. I don't know how it works, but I guess it does. And so the, the four miracles that happened that made her a saint, that right? made her a saint are like, I'm guessing prayers. They all prayed. Oh, you know, please, Joan of Arc, please help me with so and so and so and so. And if it worked, then she, you know, was considered a miracle. And so the four miracles that happened was one Sister Teresa of St. Augustine reportedly you know, it cured her leg ulcers in 18th century. Sister Julie Gauthier, who lived in uh, Faberois, reportedly cured of cancerous ulcer, again, uh, that was in her breast for 15 years. Sister Marie Sagenero was reported to have been cured of cancer of the stomach. And lastly, in 1909, messenger Leon Cristini uh, had to take a miraculous care of, of Therese Benlin at Lourdes, where she was laid unconscious, and as soon as the blessed sacrament passed over her, she sat up, and Messenger Christina invoked the name of Joan of Arc. So she, so she's just been a saint not for not that long. Mm -mm. It wasn't until nine oh nine, basically, when they finalized. Okay, she's considered a saint. Five hundred years after her fucking death. Five hundred years, and it wasn't after even like fucking death. For so before this episode, I always assumed that was the Catholic Church saying, oh, you know what? We fucked up. We burned her. We weren't supposed to do it. Spoiler alert. Like, we weren't supposed to do this. We fucked up. Let's just make it a saint. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, it wasn't. Apparently, it took a whole 500 years. It took a full 500 years for that to happen. And now, lastly, to as far as her vision of becoming a savior of France... What made that happen was a very, very important battle that, you know, she won in basically a desperate time for France. Because here this this peasant girl comes in saying she's a, the savior of France. France is getting their ass by by England. And she says, Play, take me to this battle, take me to this army. So that way, you know, we can win this one, the significant one. And that was the Battle of Orleans. Uh, in Orleans, the English were dominating and France was running out of supplies. An expedition was made to bring more supplies and reinforcements to New Orleans. To Orleans, not New Orleans. Joan of Arc demanded that she join the army of France and fight off the English 
as a head. In desperation, Dolphin Charge allowed her and supplied her with a horse, weaponry, and a suit of armor. Joan and her army engulfed in a series of battles between the English from May 4th to May 7th in 1429. It was an ongoing assault and bloodbath between the two. The French looked promising, but at one point, an arrow landed straight onto Joan of Arc's chest. Her men brought her out of battle, out of the field, out of harm's way. Joan cried in agony and refused to show any weakness. She then gripped the arrow from the shaft, pulled it straight out of her chest, and wrapped herself around, but continued to go onto the battlefield. Keep in mind, she didn't fight anyone. She didn't fight. She got shot by arrow. Army retreated her back. She took out the arrow and then went back to the battlefield. The French was stunned by what has what they have just witnessed. This only further motivated the French troops to go into one final blow and taking control of English, the English's fortification. Once Joan of Arc and her army claimed victory, she encouraged Charles uh, to head the, to Reims to claim the throne of King of France. After much deliberation between Charles and his associates, he finally headed to Reims and became King Charles VII. Joan of Arc even was at, at his side during the ceremonial event. She was then seen as a heroine of France. So there's only a short glimpse of basically the story of, of the battle. And we're definitely going to hear more from Josh. Joan's first meeting with the English at New Orleans occurred outside the city walls near the fortified church of San Lu while she was taking a nap. So it began as a skirmish evolved into a small battle. After receiving reports, the fight she hastily mounted her horse speeding through the gates with a large town militia scrambling to keep up with her to add their support. The combined French forces rushed at the English who were overpowered, who hastily retreated toward the church. Over 200 English were cut down and 40 more were taken prisoner on the way to the church. Some English outsmarted the French and escaped right under their noses by putting on robes and claiming to be priests. Joan ordered they be spared, obviously, as she did not want to violate church sanctity. Saint Saint-Lou was Joan of Arc's first battle, and she wept at the sight of so many bleeding corpses, the mutilated bodies of men who died without confession. The English covertly withdrew to the bigger and sturdier St. Augustine, fortifying its ruins. The combined English troops of 450 men initially were able to fight off the French assault with arrows, crossbow boats and cannonballs as well as the spike balls intended to cripple horses the french forces panicked and abandoned joan leaving her alone gilderay immediately ordered his men to rejoin her he protected her himself his sword and war horse becoming her shield shortly her other soldiers returned with their courage now restored they kept fighting the rest of the day the english showed their fear when according to english soldiers saw the final charge of hell. This assault was not from the French military, but Joan of Arc, the enchantress dressed in white, charged at them so fast that it left her shadow in the dust. The English imagined that fire flew from its hooves. The French broke the goddams at Augustine. So this battle is important in the story of Gilderay, if only solely to demonstrate his unselfish and willingness to throw himself in harm's way for Joan of Arc. Unselfishness 
a rare trait that is chronicled and attributed to a future brutal psychopath. 24-year-old Gil de Rey is mentioned twice at the Battle of Orleans. He is commanded for bringing needed reinforcements to Joanne at Augustine's, and after pulling her to safety when she was seriously injured during the fight, he went on to fiercely attack the English. But then the impossible occurred for the French at Tourlaise, the stone tower at the far end of Orleans. This stone, this stone tower was well commanded by the English knight Glasdale and thought to be impenetrable with over 500 men. Nevertheless, the French began a direct frontal attack. They gained ground and Joan accompanied the army as it moved forward. She sprang off her black charger, placing the first scaling ladder against the wall. But as she uncannily foretold, she was badly wounded, attempted to mount one of the ladders. She was struck with a bolt from an English crossbow with such force between her shoulder and neck that it pierced her armor, projecting almost six inches behind her neck. So she had a protruding arrow coming in from her shoulder, coming out from the back of her neck. And DeRay, he saw the whole thing and he rushed to help her. He carried her to safety to dress, you know, to help her dress this deep gash where she pulled out the arrow herself, crying in pain. Dude, fuck that. I could barely take out a splinter without me fucking wincing in pain. Imagine it, a whole uh, arrow. And imagine not even knowing the repercussions of that. Like, are you going you, 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 you to bleed, bleed out? You're going to bleed out. bleed out. So, the witch is dead. The witch is dead. That's all you heard from the, from the superstitious English. Like all medieval Catholics, the goddams considered a woman leading an army of men to be a conjurer of Satan. So seeing her injured, overjoyed the English as they all began to sing and dance. Hearing the English's cheer and seeing Joan fall made the French lose their spirit. The French commander prepared to break off the tide of battle as the English were able to fight off the demoralized French. Just then, Joan recovered as the saints appeared to her and gave her the strength to overcome her weakness. The sight of their leaders spurred the French and once again her troops rallied and the assault was renewed. During this new surge of faith in their new leader, the townsfolk sent out their own surprise to the goddams as they cut loose a loaded barge, which is basically a small boat, with flammable, materi with flammable materials which they ignited. Slowly but stealthily, the burning barge drifted under the wooden drawbridge. The burning barge went unnoticed until smoke began to rise beneath them. As they attempted to cross back over the bridge to retreat, they finally smelled the smoke and heard the crack of the fire. Damaged by the weight of the men as well as the heat of fire, the blazing structure fell apart. 300 goddams, including their leader Glasdale, ended up falling into the bottom of the river. All drowning because of the heavy armor. Dude, that's the worst way to go. Drowning. Imagine the pa the panic of you in of trying to take off the armor. I'm pretty sure you're trying to take off the armor as fast as you can. And you can't. And you can't. That's dude. horrible. Hell Fuck. I wonder how hard it is to take armor. Or how, how hard it is to put it on. Obviously hard enough for 300 soldiers <laughs> waiting who couldn't do it. So the 200 men who managed to cross the bridge, they all surrendered. As the tower was surrounded the next day the english who held the remaining towers assembled in battle formation outside the town eager for another fight french forces quickly gathered and faced the goddams but joan forbade any combat since it was sunday 
the day of worship. The two armies, they eyed each other for a few hours until the English turned away from the French and said, fuck it, and just marched off. The siege of Orleans was finally over. Overwhelmed with joy, Joan led her astonished soldiers and elated citizens of Orleans in a solemn prayer around the city walls. Kneeling, they all gave thanks to God for his deliverance of the town. Bells rang throughout the city, trumpets sounded and reveled all night. In less than a week, Joan of Arc, at 17 years old, carried off one of the most decisive battles of the world and remapped French destiny. I think that was one of the weirdest things that I found out about Joan of Arc. Because I always heard about this name, but I never really knew more information about it until this episode. She's a freaking teenager. She's young, bro. She's, she's a teen. Sp- spoiler alert. She died at 19. She didn't become an adult. She was. I mean, well, well, technically, she was considered an adult. I guess back, back then. Back then. Is she a teen? And today, yeah. What the fuck were you doing at 19? Wasn't leading a French army. I wasn't winning. I was. I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, not dead. Not dead. That's true. All right. What were you doing at seventeen? Graduating high school. Yeah, graduating high school. I was. I was shitting it because I got. I had just gotten suspended. I just gotten expelled from high school. I had to go to the continuation school. Mm. I was worried about that. Joan. Joan was going to war. Hey, but but she brave though. She was like, "Nah, nah, we ain't gonna fight." Because it's Sunday. Because Sunday. You better respect that. Yeah, she was holier than thou. She was, and like you heard at the beginning of the episode, her army was, they were kind of dirty mongrels. They were all about fucking and they were fucking everywhere. And Joan strained everything out. And that Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, her being holier than them, her being as young. And like I mentioned earlier, like you heard earlier, she wasn't all white. So she looked like this ethereal knight. Mm -hmm. And all these older guys, they were just looking at her like, oh, damn, she's getting these visions. We're winning because of her. They kind of left all their fucking, all their alcoholism, everything. They left all those vices behind and followed this fucking 17-year-old into battle. She, she gave him good good juju. She did. And it also didn't, I mean, it also helped that she, her right-hand man was fucking Gil DeRay. Which, by the way, in my research, was never mentioned. He's not, when, you, when you look at, when you read it, Joan of Arc... He's he's maybe mentioned once or twice as the general, like General DeRay. Like just like, eh. Or if he's mentioned, he's not mentioned by name. He's mentioned as the future marshal of France. Yeah. But that's it. And after you finish this fucking series. You'll know why. You might find out why. They're <laughs> not mentioning this motherfucker next to Joan of Arc. So the maid of Orleans, as Joan of Arc was now called, because the battle was won, guys, became the inspiration of France. She rolled on to many victories of France. Gilderay paid for new troops who helped Joan ride the valley of the goddamns. With Gilderay and her new revered captains by her side, she retook Jarjot, Mouan, Beaugency, and Pate all in one week. Bro, all in a week. I can't edit this episode in a week. She's fucking fighting all these goddamn fortresses. She a coach. She coaching them. The English captured and killed in Pate alone mounted to 4,000. Just in that battle alone. 4,000. 
That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of bodies. That the bodies. Then they hit the fucking floor. <laughs> so thanks to the many advances and victories of Joan of Arc, she successfully cleared the way for the Dauphin to be cheered and become popular by the French. So much so that he was crowned King Charles VII. Joan's voices directed her to take Charles to his coronation. Gill's part in Joan's successful campaign through the valley enhanced her own career. And Charles then ordered him to accompany a religious cavalcade transporting the holy oil kept at Abbey of St. Remy for the official coronation. So this holy oil was was in what's called a holy ampoule, or as the French call it, the holy ampule, which is a fancy <laughs> flask. Yeah, which is essentially a glass veil, which holds the chrism or the anointed oil mm -hmm. in which it was used for the coronation of the kings for France. It was like holy oil, right? Yeah, so it's just holy water, holy oil. Yeah. And there's legend behind this holy oil, right? And it's known as the legend of the baptism of the more moribund pagan and the legend goes according to which a dying pagan asked for baptism at the hands of saint remigius but when he was found that there was no oil this holy oil um saint remigius ordered to have two of these um uh, ampola placed in the altar in which he prayed and somehow was filled with oil with this saint this, this this divine oil and when placed on the a pagan the dying pagan the scent of this oil was new it was never to be ever smelled before it wasn't smelled before. as they believe it was filled by the heavens and that's essentially the ledge behind this holy oil in which saint remigius used for this dying and then some people say that this juice is basically just one of the first times perfume was used. Uh, and perfume was used for rich people. And it was, it was for rich people and things yeah. like that. So a lot of times, a lot of these kings were buried with this oil. It was basically like this chrism thing. But a lot of like people are like, no, it's just perfume that they used that smelled really good. Obviously, peasants are not going to be smelling perfume. They're smelling like everything else but perfume. So when they smell this, they're like, it smells heavenly. This must be holy oil. Like, no, bro, it's just Gucci. It's just Gucci. <laughs> it's just Gucci. It's just Gucci. We got Gucci. It's just Gucci. So when Gales and the other knights approached the cathedral for the king's coronation, there was a smiling sculptured angel that appeared to be particularly happier than usual as the king was being anointed by the oil joan of arc wept as she wrapped herself around the king's knees this is kind of i was like dude what the fuck like it's kind of i don't know that felt she weird that, that was weird to me she's she crying in the middle she, that, she's a little kid though. she's a kid though she has that mindset like when i was doing research apparently she was a brat dude like I know, she, but you were telling us she, earlier. She was a brat because, like, she she had no fucks given as to who she was talking to, who she was presenting herself to. Like, this whole vision thing about her meeting King Charles. She just came in. Where's King Charles? I got something for him. No, it wasn't even, it wasn't even that. It was, I mean, it was like that. But the thing is, the dolphin, he was hiding behind two guards. So no one knew what, obviously, this because he was, so when he met Joan of Arc, he agreed to meet her. Mm -hmm. So she was going to come up to him. 
Obviously, she there's no. I'm pretty sure no one knew what the fuck you looked like. There was no Facebook. There's no Facebook. Like you ain't gonna go on. You ain't gonna go on Google. This, you know, what, search. Yeah, like you ain't Charles. gonna find. You ain't gonna see his Tinder profile. So she walked in into this hall, looking for him. We're well, not even looking for him. She walked and walked straight to him. Excuse me. And he was hiding behind her. Excuse me. It's two guards. Oh. Hey. So she just walked up to him. Hey, Charles, I got something for you. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, in her in her defense. She's being ordered by God. So she's walking around like, fuck you. I don't care. Like, the man upstairs is like, Big Dick's telling me to go in here. Like, there's nothing you can do. Big Dick tells me, Big Dick, you doing? Let's say there is a heaven. Obviously, she became a saint hundreds of years later. You think she got a promotion? A promotion? Let's say there's a social class up in heaven. Uh Right? Saints is one of the top Uh tiers. You think out of the blue, she just got a promotion. She became a saint 500 years later after her death. You think they're like, it's like the, if there was a promotion, they probably moved her office to like a window office. A window where she office. got a window. Okay. Where she got a, a window. nice view. Yeah, like she got a nice. She's probably view. like over there freaking decomposing. It's about damn time. Imagine she went to hell for those 500 years. She became Ooh. a saint, and then and like the devil got a letter saying like shit. She's a uh, saint. You're getting transferred. <laughs> you're going to heaven, but she's all coked up now. So she's like, what the fuck? I like you down here. Anyways, so she was happy, dude. She started crying and she wrapped herself around the king's leg during the coronation. The crown was finally his. Gilderay, he also shared Joan's joy. His heroine, the savior of France, had successfully completed the mission her voices commanded. Deray was then given the highest military rank in the army as part of the king's first acts as a marshal of France. He wasn't the only marshal, but he would command the crown's troops and carry a sweet-ass baton as a symbol of distinction, as well as displaying the royal symbol on his coat of arms. This baton looked like... This baton was the shit. It was like this blue ivory baton, and it was like he had his own emblem like carved into it, and it was gold-plated with gold inlays. It was, it was just a gold stick, but it looked amazing. I was like, holy shit. He flexing. He was, bro. And he was also able to display the royal symbol on his coat of arms. Gil de Rey was not even 25 when he was given these great honors. He wasn't 25. Fuck, what the fuck was I doing at 25? Not that. So after the coronation, Gil's, he declined to join Charles' invitation to return to, to his court. And instead opted to join Joan's army at saint Lys. Joan of Arc's voices did tell her she was not going to rack up any more victories, but she still decided to march and reclaim Paris with her troops. But the Duke of Burgundy, who supported the English, sent word to the King of France and said if he stopped Joan of Arc's attack on the city, he would turn it over to him. The King's Chancellor, the same Chancellor that sent, that sent Joan of Arc the wrong way on purpose and tried to have Deray be a spy for them, like you heard at the beginning of the episode, advised the king to negotiate and sign a truce. So listening to his advisors, Charles ordered his commanders to stop the fighting. Joan, however, ignored the king's order and continued to attack. So as Paris seemed close to falling, her bright armor became a mark for the English and their arrows and the maid of Orleans was wounded, wounded by crossbow bolts in her thigh. Deray raced and led her to safety, and believing she might die, 
Joan requested that, that Gil, her devoted companion, who fought with her all along, stay with her throughout the night. This would be the last time they would spend time with one another. Gil's cousin, Deletremwi, insisted that Charles call back the race as soon as possible and Joan of Arc's valorous and faithful companion obeyed the command. So we're going to find out his cousin. His cousin, Shremwi. He is a piece of fucking... Oh, Shrem? Shremwi? It's pronounced like... It's, there's like a weird like soft T, like Shremwi, and then there's Shremwi. Like, I've... Shremwi. Shremwi. He's a piece of shit. Is that the same cousin that he would fuck around with? That got sodomized? No, you're thinking no, of Roger. Roger. You're thinking oh, of Roger. Roger. You're thinking poor, of Roger. Poor Roger. <laughs> Roger's the butt-fucking cousin. The butt-fucking cousin. <laughs> so all of this is important because the last Shremwi, as history has proved, was a piece of fucking shit. And he only cared for himself and his well-being, which was a conflict of interest considering he was an English empathizer and a corrupt statesman. In order to save his own fortress from English occupation, he plotted with the goddamn to stop the king's coronation. So he was working for the king. He was the king's, like, advisor. Yeah. But he was an English sympathizer. So he was, he, he, he was, he was for the English. Was he was crosser. for the, he wanted the English yes. to win. But he just so happened to be working for France. So he was doing everything he could to make things work in his, in his favor. Imagine, not Littlefinger, but what's the bald dude with no nuts from Game of Thrones? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the... I forgot his fucking name. That one. dude. Imagine, this is him. He knows everything, but he's plotting. He knows, like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Joan recovered enough from her wounds to continue fighting, but she did not capture Paris. Demle Shremwi had sold out the French cause in that city well before the attack. So her hopes dashed Damn. as she left Paris, but before leaving, she laid her armor on the altar in the cathedral of St. Denis whose name was a war cry of France. So this is where they would, like, when they would go to, they would say, Dennis! Like, you know, when they were going to war, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. They were just going. And this is maybe where she lost her sword. Probably. She felt her armor was useless as a king not only withdrew from Paris, but disbanded his army for the winter. 1,300 ekus of silver and gold sent to assist the French to pay for troops to assist their fight disappeared under the watch of De La Tremwe. So mm. this piece of shit. So, mm. de la, so De La Tremwe, he was in cahoots with the chancellor, with, with, with the, um, what, what was it? The Lord of uh, Burgundy? So whatever. So he, like I said, he was an English sympathizer. So the, so the French sent, him, sent money to Joan of Arc to try to help, to pay for more troops mm. to fight off Paris. Mm -hmm. He, as an English sympathizer, that money was lost. Under his guy, under his watch, like, I don't know where it went, and that money was specifically was to be used to help Jean free Paris. But the the dude of Burgundy and him were English sympathizers in Paris. They didn't want the French taking over Paris. They wanted the English, so they tried to do everything they fucking could to keep France from winning and English to win to the point where they sold out. Jean Farc. So when the truce expired. Joan went back to Paris to rid France of the goddamn. She's like, all right, fuck this. I'm actually going to go and do this. She remained such an inspiration to France that citizens of a city 25 miles east of Paris rose up when they heard she would be attempting to liberate the city of Melu. After 10 years of being under the English rule, 
After 10 years of eating rats for survival, they finally defeated the English and kicked out the goddamns, giving Joan of Arc a clear path into Paris. As, so as she was headed to Paris, Joan's voices warned her that she would be captured in the near future. She begged her saints to tell her when this would happen, and later even confessed that if she had known the exact date, she wouldn't have gone to fight. Soon right after, a small group of runaways from the small town of Cop of Copier met with the maid and explained to her that they had little food supply and the crops had been destroyed. The city was small, so not many English were stationed there and that victory would be short and sweet. So she accepted the challenge, even with some of her captains having drifted away due to her limited resources. So long story short, as she was trying to retreat and enter the town and cross the bridge, soldiers from both sides tried to cram onto the bridge slashing their way across it. She was flanked as the governor watched the bloodshed. He ordered the drawbridge to be raised and the gate shut, leaving Joan of Arc outside the city walls. He later claimed it was to stop the English from entering the city. But considering he was a close relative to an archbishop who was an English apologist and was under the order of the La Tremui, it is safe to say that he betrayed the Maid of Orleans. Of Orleans. Bent on capturing the witch, the English grabbed her by her cape and dragged her off her horse, while the town folks of Compiègne watched in horror. All over France, citizens, peasants, and nobles alike mourn in the hearts at the disbelief of their heroine being taken from them stung. But when the Duke of Burgundy heard about the capture, he had a hymn thanking God for a special blessing to be sung in all churches in Paris. The University of Paris, loyal to Burgundy and the English, attempted to get Joan into its hands because the English surrogates, they would try her as a witch and heretic. After hearing about Joan's capture, now 26, de Ray planned a daring rescue of the maid that involved retaking the city and the castle she was imprisoned in. For six months, his frustration grew as he couldn't break the English and drive out the goddamns. So DeRay said, fuck it, and devised a new plan just to rescue Joan. So after she was captured, Gil DeRay was like, yo, I need to save her. So he yeah. went, and for six months, he tried to fight the goddamns, and he couldn't make his way into the fucking city. His thing was like, I'm going to free the city. By freeing the city, I'm going to be able to free Joan. Yeah. But after six months, he's like, dude, I'm, I, I'm not making any fucking progress. progress. So he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go in and just save her. So he believed that the English lookouts at Rouen, at the Rouen castle, would leave their posts to seek shelter on cold winter nights. When they did, he would set ladders against the, against the high stone walls. And with 15 of his captains, he would mount the walls, killing any English in sight. So after scaling the walls... Gills would then count on finding Joan in one of, the, one of these frigid cold towers and saving the maid after overpowering her English jailers. After the rescue, Duray and his group would fight off any remaining attackers and bring Joan to safety. So unfortunately, the English learned of the plan and threatened to throw Joan off the tower rather than to give her up. Hmm, I wonder who gave up that plan. Duray must have been mm. like, fuck! The goddamn! The goddamn goddamns! Hey, that's us. 
The raid of the Ray invasion never happened, and he was not able to defeat the English till after the death of the Maiden. Damn, that sucks, my dude. <laughs> Even so, Gilderay's willingness to risk his own life to save her showed his courage, his humility, and loyalty traits that are rarely ever found, if ever, in the monsters of Gil's caliber. Ever protecting and commanding by her side, Deray's life has been changed by Joan, but the black planet bringing misfortune hovered above him once again, waiting to tear his life apart. Remember from episode one where he said he, he felt he was born under the shadow of this black planet, every time something bad would happen to him, he would automatically go, this fucking black planet. It's fucking That's this black planet. It's fucking me up. Severe depression at its best. So when King Charles heard of Joan's capture, he said nothing nor did nothing to attempt to save her, although he had the means to do so. If he could not outright rescue and free her, he could have easily exchanged her for some of the high-ranking English prisoners that he had captured, or he could have offered a ransom for her. But why should he? He did have his crown, his lands were free of the goddams, so he was technically no longer in any personal danger. Self-indulgent as ever, the king showed no gratitude to the maid of Orleans, the virgin saint who single-handedly earned him his crown and had no personal loyalty to her after what she represented for him. A hope for a fledgling crown. Self-centered bitch. Dude, he did nothing to save her. He could have. He could have given money. He could have traded her for sold. Nothing. He just didn't give up. He's like, why? I, I got what I wanted. Yeah. Like, I'm good. Because at, at that point, it's it's means of, like, just being morally right. Because he wasn't going to get anything off of it. He, he really wasn't. And yeah. he was far enough where like, the English weren't a problem to him anymore. To, personally, they weren't a problem to him. Personally, he was not in any personal danger. Yeah. He was just like, I'm good. Like. Sucks to suck. Damn. When the represent, uh, representation ended, she was literally of no use to him. She basically ceased to exist to him. It's as if she wasn't even real to him anymore. So King Charles unfortunately listened to the piece of shit of De La Tremouille. Trem, Tremouille? Tremouille. Tremouille. Then they recommended him to abandon her, only reinforcing how he truly felt about her at this point. So remember, De La Tremouille, he is an English sympathizer. And the English saw Joan of Arc as this piece of fucking shit. This, she's this fucking girl that keeps fucking them up. Yeah. So he, so De La Tremouille, as an English sympathizer, is like, dude, we need to get rid of her. We, we need to do everything we possibly could to get her out of the picture. So him, so at this point, King Charles, he's thinking, dude, I'm good. I mean, it sucks. Like, she got captured. Okay. Shit happens during war. Yeah. I'm good. I'm king. I'm far away. I don't really need to do anything. So with De La Tremuy in his ear saying, you really don't. What, what are you going to do? Why are you going to give up assets for her? She did what she was supposed to. And you're good. So for the English, keeping Joan of Arc alive was too dangerous. After all, she literally thwarted their efforts in trying to take over France. Aside from spreading, aside from spreading panic throughout the English army. So the goddamns intended to have the Catholic Church try her as a heretic, a blasphemer, and a witch with the assistance of the University of Paris. So after months on trial and being, and being convicted of heresy, Joan left her prison in the executioner's cart. Two English soldiers grabbing Joan and hurrying her to a stake where they bound her tightly around the waist. 
she asked God to pardon her judges, the English and King Charles. She called out the names of her saints, Michael, Margaret, and Catherine. The ones that she had the visions from in the very beginning. She prayed to Jesus and begged for a cross to be held up so she could see it. The executioner then lit the flaming torch. There, the maid of miracles, deserted by the king she crowned, the city she rescued, and the captain she led to victory, slowly burned to death. God damn. So, dude, that's... Imagine being fucking... I'm mad, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not the one who's being burned. So numb after the finality of Joan's death finally sank in, Gil, he tried his best to, res to repress his painful loss as best as he could by being a soldier. He continued his role as a marshal of France and performed duties for the king, but mostly for the piece of shit de la Tremuy, who only sent him out on things that he considered advantageous to his own interests. So at this point during the war, the French were regaining most of their land back, so his loyalty to the English and the goddamn specifically kind of went out the door. He ordered Gil de Ray, now 28, to take part in a few battles in which the French won. Gil de Ray's important accomplishments at the Battle of Lanny and Tourelles earned him prominent acclaim. He distinguished himself during both of these battles, and the memory of his, hero of his heroism persisted after his death. Two years after the Battle of Lonnie, King Charles had to order Gil to go to aid the Duke of Bourbon. The king demanded DeRay to dispatch a large number of troops to Burgundy to aid the troops in their struggle. So, and this is it. so here's where we, f where we first see the indication of the psychological transformation DeRay was beginning to undergo. DeRay always had 200 troops ready at his disposal. The well-armored cavalry was battle-ready, but instead, Gil asked De La Tremuy to loan him 12,000 gold crowns so that he could raise an army. The raised enthusiasm for fighting was, at best, nearly drained from him. In exchange, he took out a mortgage on De Ray Castle, Chamtous. Chamtous. That's awesome. Chamtous. That sounds cool. So at this Chamtous. point, De Ray was... He had... He had a small army at him, battle-ready, at all fucking times. And the king's like, hey, I need you to go help out this dude for us. And DeRay, he's like, all right, well, he, he was kind of over it. He was legit over it. So he went to Telatinamui. He's like, hey, you know, let me borrow 12,000 crowns so I could go buy an army. And at this point, like, he was just over it. And as you're going to hear, this is what happens. But once Gil received the funds, he ignored the Battle of Burgundy and instead sent his younger brother, René, to fight in his place. Instead, he stayed in Orleans as he led a lavish theatrical production which glorified Joan of Arc. Remember, during his use, he loved staging grandiose stage productions and now with his waning thirst for battle, he found a new expensive vice for him to immerse himself into. So this is where we kind of start seeing the beginning of the end for, for DeRay. So his behavior in ignoring the king's orders, there were grounds for being labeled a deserter. They could have killed him right then and there for, being, for deserting the fucking French army. Instead, the king summoned DeRay and informed him that he would never hold another administrative post. Charles VII decreed Gilles DeRay 
dishonorably discharged from military service, but allowed him to keep his rank and his baton. Gilderay was now stripped of the one thing that he held so dear to him, the thing that gave his life meaning after his tumultuous childhood, but he wasn't ashamed, mostly due to him not really giving a fuck anymore. Joan of Arc's death had crushed him. Her death was an overwhelming loss in his life, becoming greater as time passed on. Gilles had been attached to Joan of Arc her, and her devotion to God, her distinct mission, her passionate resolve had been monumental for Duray to live honorably. She was not only the inspiration for her country, but she was also kind of like a symbol of hope for Duray. Duray's discipline, honor, and devotion, they all died with Joan of Arc. It made no sense to Gil how a saint could have been treated so horribly, not only by man, but by God. A radical change now occurred in Gil's Duray. Honor and patriotism, it meant dick to him. He wanted little to do with public service, and as far as he was concerned, the world closed around him. So he retreated to his castles as he felt he had no need to lead a disciplined life. He spent his time in debauchery, living lazily with his homosexual companions. Since he had no work to do, his mind wandered and created strange and disturbing thoughts. He spent his days and nights drunk as a distraction to get him to the pain of his hero's death. Passing out drunk or waking up in cold and hot sweats, they became the norm. He had horrible nightmares that would startle him awake, shaking, never knowing where he was. His grandfather, Jean de Cron, he passed away the year after the Catholic Church had burned Joan. And near the end of his life, he had second thoughts on his way of living. Kind of convenient how that usually works with pieces of shit people, right? They're usually pieces of shit, and then when they're dying, they're like, oh, I think I, I, think I fucked up. They start having, they start trying to get penance, they start trying to you know, get, get forgiveness, and not doing all this shit. want to go to heaven. So he tried to make amends to those he harmed by leaving property and money to his peasants and compensating those he had robbed. So he's going up to people, he's like, look, look, I know I stole your shit, but look, I'm sorry, here you go, we're good. They dap it up, and he bounces. Remember when I stole your house? Uh... Here you go. Imagine the conversation you have to have with the lady that he fucking married Gil to. The one, he, hey, look, I'm sorry I stole your daughter. She was gone for 18 months. <laughs> Fuck. Have this castle. I'm sorry. So as he lay dying, he became alarmed by DeRay's excessive brutality. His abnormal sexual vices for the time. Because remember, at this point, Gil DeRay, he was just having gay orgies the whole time after his military career. And abruptly ended, as well as his extravagances, which was a stark contrast to the cruel behavior he condoned during Gil's formative years. So toward the end of his life, he's like, hey, y'all, dude, you're fucking up. Why are you doing all this shit? Which, is, like I just mentioned, is a complete 180 to how he was when Gil Ray was young, believing he had been corrupted by the devil's touch. And with no idea that Gil's now suffered, now suffered from serious mental health problems, he left his sword together with his breastplate armor, which is a symbol of manhood and strength, to his younger grandson, René, rather than Duray, the Marshal of France. But this didn't bother Duray, though, because he had given up being a hero. And now free from his grandfather, he remained one of France's wealthiest nobles. He now could act as he saw fit, which he did, by willfully ignoring all laws of decency and squandering his inheritance. And of course, so, you know, 
DeRay is no longer in active mil uh, military duty. So what does an ex-French soldier now do with all this free time? Theater, baby. Theater <laughs> was widely popular in the 15th century. And this was kind of a big deal of, to everyday life. Every large town in Europe had its own company performing these huge medieval performances on the steps of the cathedrals and in the streets uh, to the delight of hundreds and sometimes even thousands of people. So it was customary for every great noble or baron to offer this grandiose stage performance due during church holidays or sometimes just to his slash her own enjoyment. And DeRay was no exception. He seriously only began after his military service, quote unquote, ended when he lacked any sort of direction and just started the dazzling shit. That's basically how it happened. He was just bored. He liked theater and he was just like, hey, you know, what? I'm kind of good at this shit. And just started doing it little by little, started doing writing screenplays, started getting actors and, you know, just doing all this like fancy shit. Turn to freaking Shakespeare. He also needed to keep busy to avoid constantly being reminded of the loss of Joan of Arc. On a whim, he decided to stage production at his castle, uh, Chemtus. DeRay considered himself to be a patron of the arts and basically welcomed anybody and everybody, like poets, writers, and actors, who drifted to his castle. So, right now, at this point, word's starting to spread around that Gales is starting to do these huge productions and he's looking for people. And yeah. people and actors are, and actors are like, that are working for DeRay, they'd go home and they tell their buddies, hey, you know, he, he's hiring people. Just, just start showing up. You know the war hero? And yeah. Pe people just started showing up. And with the more people that showed up, the bigger his fucking production ended up becoming. Mm -hmm. And he treated, treated his well-funded cast to lavish meals and exotic wines. So as his shows grew, so did his crowds. Until finally, he was at his tent show and invited everyone who could come as they would also receive drinks and food free of charge so he had his castle open Damn. for anybody to just show up and these he's oprah and these dude we're, we're gonna find out he was close <laughs> bro he was close we're gonna find out and also we're gonna find out later on he he kind of used the strategy to do the things he did mm -hmm. but he would open his castle to anybody and everybody just come in there's free food and this food it was like legit it wasn't like a little porridge and it was like Fucking cow and meat and everything, wine, like peasants, everybody the showing best up to of the eat. the best to anyone who wants to see it. His love of battle had now been replaced by his rekindled love for the theater. He then rushed off and did a theatrical tour of the two major towns to show off his genius. So word spread about the tour and his magnificent presentation, his production, created so much interest that all work stopped. All buying and selling stopped when he would come to town. And he made sure of that as he threatened the public with a fine if all eyes weren't on him. Really? So he would just show up to town and be like, hey, I'm doing this shit and you guys can come see it. And y'all have no choice because if not, I'm going to fine your asses. So no wonder he had large crowds. And the thing is, and if you couldn't get the day off, mm -hmm. he'd say, like, if you need like, dude, I can't get, the, I need the money. He'd be like, don't worry about it. I'll pay your, I'll pay your wages. I'll pay your lost wages. Damn. Just, just come see me. He would just yeah, that basically you just throwing fucking money. Damn, tension whore. Then on the day of the performance, an an assistant would hand DeRay an upturned helmet stuffed with coins, which DeRay would toss into the crowd. He he is Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. 
Damn. You get a coin. <laughs> you get a coin. Everyone gets coins. He enjoyed watching the crowds grovel and climb over one another for them. Oh, kinky motherfucker. But the Ray's production were the greatest shows during the time. A group of a thousand people would go from town to town as he would to these events. Thousands? And these thousands of people, they weren't act they weren't actors. They were just people that were just like, oh shit, we're gonna we're gonna follow. Remember, you you you're eating for free, you're drinking for everything is on DeRay's dime. And this is this is gonna fucking catch up to him. Just think gonna, about it. Uh, people are gonna be like thousands. Is, is this a cool show? Nah, it ain't. It's my like twentieth show. And that's basically how it happened. That's basically <laughs> what it was. But here's a little like little fun fact. I'm stealing something from my brother. He's the fun <laughs> fact king. But during it is during this time during the whole production thing, it's where DeRay where he got his in his infamous name of Bluebeard, and it was became and it was because of his horse. The Nutcracker. The Nutcracker, he had a shiny black coat. And it was glossy like sand. And it would change color according to the light, how the light would handle. Oftentimes giving off a blue reflection that would in turn reflect on his rider. Mm. DeRay. Ah. So the reflection of the horse, the light would hit DeRay's beard. And the beard would kind of look a little blue. No wonder in the story when you're saying that the sister or something was like, hey, it ain't that blue. It ain't that blue. Because he's not with his horse. He's not, he's not on Nutcracker. So the production was called The Siege of Orleans. Oh, he's not He's not leaving this <laughs> by any bit. And excitement grew within Orleans as the, as the word spread that the very rich Marshal of France, the elegant lord, and one of their heroes was going to present a monumental show about the city's struggles against the goddamns on his own dime. He's not making any money off of this. And remember, the people of Orleans helped the raid defeat the goddamns. They're the ones who lit the boat on fire. They actually helped him out. So the fact that he came to the city, said, hey, I'm going to make a play, not only as a thank you, but to show everyone what you guys did for France. Orleans was fucking excited. His extravagance... All right, so so the town folks of Orleans, they watched as they began to build a stage higher than a house, half a street long, and sturdy enough to hold countless men and horses as part of DeRay's depiction of the battle scenes. They gazed at countless barrels of Hippocross, which is a spicy wine. This is going to come in handy, learning what a Hippocross is. This was a choice of poison that he would use to get the children drunk before he raped, tortured, killed them. Orleans became a festive city the second DeRay and his production company stepped inside its walls. His extravagance, they saw no bounds, and DeRay entertained day and night, holding banquets for the hotshots that came to Orleans for a stage show. Feasts were nonstop for the people as well, with tables set out as far as the eyes can see with food and drink. And all of this went on for 13 months. And it was free. As thousands of people would flock to Orleans. The funny thing was that according to historians, the play wasn't that great. The writing was average at best. And it was kind of a mess. But no one said anything. As of the siege, they glorified Joan of Arc and DeRay which many came to believe that this was to try and make the guilt over her death a little smoother for him. 
and he might have just wanted to celebrate the nobler and happier times. It's no secret that he longed for popularity. The siege and his extravagances at Orleans were his attempts to regain his self-image, his status as a man of great importance, and he basked in the adulation and the flattery he received, as many saw him as that brave warrior and not the broken man that he had become. His childhood abnormalities and perversions, they were kept at bay when he was with Joan, but were now starting to come forth. He still craved the bloodshed and the savagery, which he no longer experienced during battle. As his mind went and his mental health sloped, this lingering taste for blood and the macabre led him to prey upon the vulnerable and the helpless. Children, whom he first raped, then tortured, and finally killed. But Deray's ridiculous sensationalism led him to desperate and unplanned borrowing. So when his credit ran out in Orleans, he got his production company and left to the nearest town, which was south of his current stay. For 13 months, he was at Orleans, getting food from Orleans. He was telling all the restaurants, give me all your food, give me all your drinks. And all these restaurants, everybody who owned a butcher shop, they were giving everything to Orleans. And then when it was time to pay up, he was like, oh, I, oh, I left my wallet. He's like, skirt. And they wouldn't give him anything anymore. And if there's no food, or there's no free drinks, and this play wasn't that great, the people ain't going to be there. So what does he do? He bounces. And as he neared his newest location, he could not help but remember the battle that took place there, where he and Jean fought victoriously. And he dreamt of his battle during his two-month stay here, and the nightmare would always end the same, with him getting wounded, unable to help poor Jean, poor Jean as he would have to see the wild flames engulf his friends. And each nightmare would end with him waking up in a panic and then crying. He often thought of suicide but never had the energy to go forth with it. Instead, he just drank heavily to lift his spirits. But like in Orleans, guilds could pay a little over only the half amount demanded by the creditors. So he needed to leave two servants as collateral at one of his lodgings. He's like, hey, look, I, I ain't got enough. <laughs> but James Silent Bob over here, <laughs> I can leave them here. They're good. Like they'll help you guys out. And he had to leave. You want them. money? You want free work? Imagine being those two people. You're like, hey, I mean, what the fuck? I'm like, dude, I'm, my house is over there. I ain't leaving in Orleans. What the fuck is this? Hey, here for the food. That's it. So he was on a downward spiral with his with this disastrous spending, and he would soon be forced to give up lands estates and personal property for all of this ridiculous spending jewelry clothes swords pictures priceless manuscripts wagons harnesses his horse treasures from his nutcracker? chapel nutcracker yes nobody's safe nobody just like golden chandeliers and silk curtains the race sold off everything that was of any value at a really low price when his cash and credit ran out and had to pay for Orleans. The former Marshal of France was quickly thrown into bankruptcy. He got this bankrupt. Bankrupt, bro. But his ridiculous spending wasn't the only thing that caused his rapid decline into bankruptcy. Remember his distant cousin Roger de Brecuvi? Remember Roger from earlier, the one he butt fucked? Well, the Roger. 
Well, the reason he went to go live with DeRay was mainly due to his family losing their wealth when his father opposed the English. So with his broken, hungry eyes, he felt no affection, loyalty, or gratitude to DeRay and would rob DeRay at every chance he saw. So determined to profit at DeRay's expense and to fleece him whenever he could, he would take advantage of DeRay during this time. Encourage DeRay to drink and drink and constantly persuading to keep spending freely and to top it off, he would receive a cut from both sides when he would convince DeRay to sell his riches. Both sides? Because as we're going to find out, he, DeRay, kind of left him in charge of his estates. Roger. And Roger. And Roger, as he would tell DeRay, hey, sell and sell it to this dude. And not only he would get, a, so when he, let's say DeRay would sell it, for example, he would sell something for like $1,000. Well, DeRay would have to give him a cut of the $1,000. Because he helped him sell it. Because so. he helped him sell it. Yes. And the dude he sold it to would give Roger a cut. Because Roger hooked him up with the deal. <laughs> so on top of the cut from DeRay, he was getting DeRay, the cut from the, dude. from the other dude. In, in Roger's defense, he, De, I don't, DeRay was butt-fucking them when they were kids. <laughs> like, I don't blame, like, dude, like, get it where you can. You know what I mean? Get it where you can. <laughs> he ain't double dipping. He getting two dips. God. So during the time that DeRay was away at war, it was his grandfather, DeCron, who managed his properties as DeRay could not be bothered with the daily administration of upkeep. So after his grandfather's death and during this out-of-control spiral of his, he gave over the handling of his entire fortune to Roger. Roger was now in charge of fucking everything. The power of attorney was signed and sealed, giving Roger the authority to sell DeRay's castles, lands, and possessions as he saw fit. So DeRay wasn't even in charge anymore. It was all Roger. Roger could do whatever the fuck he wanted, whenever the fuck he wanted. But this deed that he signed, the power of attorney, it also authorized Roger to contract a marriage and set a dowry for Marie, the only child of Gail and Catherine. DeRay had a daughter this entire time. Well, he was having orgies and theater and all Everything. Stuff. He had a daughter. But DeRay... Did not give a fuck about his daughter, who was born in 1429, or had an interest in even providing a single fucking dime for her. He found both her and her mother irritated and had been living in a castle far away from him. DeRay made it clear to his wife that he saw his close associates, now his homosexual bed partners, far more captivating than her. Dude, I don't give a shit about you or that little brat. See this dick? This is what I want. And that's basically what happened. So it was around this time that the king received a plea for help from DeRay's family. From the DeRay family. They wanted to put a stop to Gil's financial fuck-ups. And the king obliged. So the official decree signed by the king claimed DeRay a prodigal. Which is someone who is very wasteful with his resources. This decree was posted in the towns of Orleans, Tours, Angers, Chemtous, and literally any other place frequented by DeRay and his production company. He ordered DeRay to halt any transfers of properties going forward and directed a controller to take charge of Gil's remaining fortune, his younger brother Rene. 
So when this degree was signed, they took away all the power of attorney from Roger and gave it to Gil's younger brother, Rene. Mm-hmm. But the money he did manage to get before this decree from the sale of the properties amounted to about 200,000 gold crowns. So when doing research, I couldn't really find a calculator that would tell me how much that is worth in today's money. So we're going to be doing a little math to find this out. So the gold crown, it was replaced by the British crowns in 1707 with the face value of five pounds. So it went from being French gold crowns to British gold crowns Mm -hmm. in 1707, which is 300 years after. And one gold crown was the value of five pounds. British pounds. British pounds. So that is our foundation. Five British pounds equals one gold crown. So if DeRay managed to get close to 200 gold crowns, that means he had over a million pounds. And one pound in the 1400s is worth 611 euros or 707 US dollars. And that info was from measuringworth.com if you guys want to check and do the math yourselves. So one pound equals $707 and he had 1 million pounds. That means his earnings from the selling of his properties was over $707 million. And starting in 1453, then 31, Jeroe went through that fortune in just three years. $707 million fucking dollars, bro. In three years. I don't think I could spend that money in three years. Uh, I, no, I, no, I could do it. I could do it. I could do it. Could you know what? That ain't a challenge anymore. And, and um, when you read up on it, some of the, some of these plays that he would... The, for example, the play at Orleans. Mm. They said a day he was maybe spending a million dollars. Day. A day. Why he was spending a million dollars? Well, he wanted everything to be fancy. He wanted everything to look good. So after, after every after the play was over on Monday, everything was thrown away and burned. Tuesday, brand new everything. Because he wanted his play to be the best. Every single time. And he was the best. But he three years, bro. 707 million fucking dollars. Because you know why? It's because freaking Renan, bro. So during this time, all over Europe, Alchemists were hoping to produce the Philosopher's Stone, which is a substance that is capable of turning inexpensive metals into gold and provide the secret to eternal youth as well. We're not talking about Harry Potter. So producing gold seemed like an attainable goal, and they applied logic and discipline to their experimentations. They wanted to obtain gold and also hoped to obtain wisdom by examining the mysteries of life. Black magic and alchemy were closely related only for the mere fact that astrology it played a huge role in both of these practices. And considering how prevalent astrology was, and seeing that alchemists were trying to live forever, which could be interpreted as a, like telling God to go fuck himself, because you're kind of ruining his, you know, like his divine plan. It's easy to see how black magic and alchemy could be confused. Duray showed little interest in the intellectual exercise in the study of alchemy. Remember, he was big on learning and tried to learn as much as he could. So you can imagine how desperate DeRay was when he turned to alchemy, something he probably saw as nothing more than like a fool's game to aid him in his struggles. He had learned of the practice in his early military days from an acquaintance, a knight, 
the soldier lent Doray a manual on the art of alchemy, which detailed how you can freeze mercury and turn it into quicksilver. Desperate to regain his fortune, he actually began studying the manuscript in great detail. The book primarily dealt with the cult of the devil and procedure for summoning demons. If his experiments failed, DeRay saw the use of black magic to ask for Satan for gold as his plan B. And this manual laid out the specific methods needed to summon him. A circle had to be sketched with arcane symbols and characters, charms, spells, animal offerings, burning coals, incense, myrrh, and addles. They were of the utmost importance. Specific incantations needed to be said. They involved swearing upon the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, and all of the saints. With half of his estates lost, with his family appealing to the king to end, to end his excesses and his treasures still paying for the Orleans disaster, DeRay was in financial straits. He disregarded sanctions banning attempts to make gold and retreated to his favorite castle, the ghostly gray stone Tifuge. Convinced that alchemy or the devil could restore his wealth. And that is where we'll stop part two of our Gilded Ray series. 707 million fucking dollars, bro, in three years. And this was, that's how many, how much money he had after Tom. All right, we, that's, you that's, can't do any more theater stuff. No, no, that's, so, so that's, that's how much money he had before they cut him off. So he was selling everything good yeah. to pay off everything. Yeah. The DeRay family, they're like, dude, we need to stop. They called the king. Hey, you need to do this. We need to stop. He's doing, he's ruining, he's ruining our fucking everything for us. Our finance, our finances, he's fucking it up. So the king put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. And he put a stop to it when DeRay had sold enough to where he, where he had 707 million fucking dollars. So when, when you said he was close to Oprah, he was close to Oprah. Three years, he got rid of it. And you're going to find out next episode how people swindled him out of money. He was desperate to recoup his money. He was desperate, dude. He was, he was broke. And he couldn't, people only wanted to be around him when he had money. He's going to turn to alchemy. And if not, he, was, he turned to the devil, which the devil answered. Oh, uh, hell, Satan. I'm just a poor boy. Nobody likes me. Basically. So that is part two of our Gilderay series. The first two episodes are really history heavy. So thank you guys for sticking for sticking with us. But the next two is where the meat and bones come from. That's where you're going to find out about him talking to demons. Him fucking seeing gold. He did what? Talking gold. Seeing being chased by huge snakes around his castle. Having people swindle him and swindle him out of gold. And part three is where we're going to find. Where we're going to start first seeing the rape. Torture, and finally the brutal killings of hundreds of children. Hundreds of children. So this is where the hundreds. weird history and eerie tales. That's where, really every, this comes where, this where everything meets. Hundreds. 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 Do you guys have anything else to add before we end this episode? So Joan of Arc was really the nail in the coffin for this dude. That's ba that was the yeah. last thing, dude. Damn. That's after him. That after was what kept him sane. Yeah. And a lot of, and most of the things like now people attribute it most of it's everything that happened to him was because of PTSD. Because mm -hmm. that that explains a lot of a lot of his fucking habits. After mm -hmm. pe people with PTSD, they like to 
according to according to the bug and according to some some of these sources, he liked to be on his own. He a lot of times he would just have these things would trigger him and he start freaking out and all of this. Obviously back then they don't know about fucking PTSD. Uh-huh. So they're like, dude, this dude's going crazy, and people are telling him he's going crazy, and he believes it because of the curse of the black planet that he had in his head. Mm-hmm. So it was crazy. It's then. And you can find all of these pictures, pictures and things, videos on our Instagram. Weird, the weird history he retells pod. We that's where we post pictures of the books that we have our sources. We post pictures of the things we talk about. Like we put like last week, I posted pictures of Joan of Arc and this. And on our Instagrams, where you find out what future episodes are going to be are gonna going to be about. And if you guys can do us a favor, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us out, helps the show grow. That's what we want. We want the show to grow so that we can do more episodes like this and like our previous episodes. But if no one has anything else to add, thank you guys. And as always, we are the Weird History, Here We Tells Pod. Oh.